0: So I have the privilege of um, uh, completing a series on financial stewardship. Um, Paul, the week before, and Russ, last week, have done amazing jobs in setting setting this up. And so if you're a visitor, please, this is for our people, and I hope it blesses you anyway. And we're not a church that ever asks for money, but we do believe that it's uh, important that we preach on it. God is our supplier, God is our source, and just all disclaimers, I have no idea who gives and who doesn't into the life of the church, because uh, that's, I believe, personal between people and God. So please rest in that. We're not going to be pastoring the offering basket around after the preach. And, um, but uh, it's been a three-part series, and I trust that we've come to the conclusion that God loves to bless us. And that he has no problem with wealth. In the New Testament we see friends of Jesus like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Who were really wealthy men, members of the Jewish council. And in Luke 23 we see that Joseph was so impacted by Jesus. That even while some of the disciples themselves ran away. He actually went to Herod or to Pilate. And to uh, ask for Jesus' body so that he could bury it in his own personal tomb. So it great cost to him financially to do that, but also he put his life on the line. He could have been um, taken in prisoner at there. And these guys were, I believe, dear friends of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we saw, and Russ did such a good uh, job of this last week that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you read their story. They ended up extremely wealthy, and God blessed them. And you can read their stories in Genesis. And we see with David and Solomon the same thing. So, like I say, it's not about wealth. The problem is never wealth. The problem is when wealth owns us instead of us owning it. The problem is that when it becomes our master and Jesus speaks about this quite a lot in the, in the Gospels. In Matthew 6, where he talks about, seek first the kingdom and don't worry what you will wear and what you will drink. The Father in heaven knows that before you even ask him. And then he goes on to this, that we to seek first his kingdom. And he says this, for where your treasure is, and he's talking about finances, your heart is. So God is not into finances, uh, uh, short of finances. God provides him, but he's after our hearts. And Paul in 1 Timothy 6 writes this. 1 Timothy 6 is an amazing chapter on finances. It says, do not put your trust in wealth, which is so uncertain. Put your trust in God. And I look at that, and I think 2,000 years later, how much more (laughs) uncertain life is today. But in the same same chapter, he says this in verse 10. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is the word of God, and so I'm just repeating what God says. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many troubles. And as a pastor over the last 30 years, as I look back, I unfortunately uh, have seen many people come uh, for counsel and so on that and needing work and finances and really in touch with God. And God blesses and blesses and blesses them. And they begin to wander away. to slowly but surely drift away. And that's what Paul's in. See, you see, wandering... And drifting is not an event. It's a process. the enemy is too subtle. He just lures us away with the deceitfulness of wealth. And it's so sad to see people that were so on fire of God sometimes get, get, in a sense, shipwrecked by the pursuit of wealth. When we become discontent with what we have, We are in danger of wandering from the faith. And we need to be reminded that true contentment can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's a discontentment that the enemy puts in our hearts. It's the curse of comparison. And when I sit down with David and see what he goes through, (laughs) and I sit here in Canada, And I compare myself to Him, I can't believe how blessed we were. When we were looking to plant a church from Africa, I sincerely thought it would be in a third world context, somewhere in Southeast Asia. But God supernaturally called us to Canada. And uh, I just thank Him. Thank Him so much that I'm here. But when we we compare ourselves and how discontentment comes in, is we always compare ourselves up and never down. We're sitting in the, in, on our nice boat on the ocean, and the guy's got a, a rowing boat next to us. We ignore him, and then the big yacht comes past and say, "What the heck? Why haven't I got that?" It happens with houses, it happens with cars, it happens with everything. And I'm not saying, as I said, God does not want to bless us, but we will never, ever find contentment in that. God has given us those, and He wants to bless us for our enjoyment, but we will never, ever find contentment in more stuff, in more stuff. When Deborah and I got married, we, we were as poor as church mice, and, um, and we look back at those times in that one-bedroom apartment, the, then with one child. Actually, it wasn't an apartment, it was one room with a room divider. More than likely, one of some of the most happiest times in our lives where we could just lock up and go, and, uh, and so on. So don't hear me what I'm not saying. But we need to find our contentment not in what we have and not in what we do, but in who we are, in Christ, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, we can never, ever find it anyway. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every person, and nothing but God can fill it. And we think by filling it with stuff, if I had this, if I had this, if I had this, and uh, we're going to talk about that, this vacuum. Even the Beatles knew that money couldn't buy them love. Buy you a diamond ring, my friend. I don't care for much, too much for money. For money, come buy me love. And I know it's a nice song. But I wonder whether they got to the pinnacle of their careers and realized with all this fame and fortune, without love, it meant nothing. And that love comes the Lord, from the Lord Jesus Christ. All people are searching. They're searching in the wrong places. Including, including many Christians unfortunately, you see, money may able to buy com- comfort, but it can never, ever buy contentment. It can never do that. And when we get on that wheel, it doesn't seem unless we ask God to put the brake on, it just goes faster and faster and faster and faster. You see, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. And please read that chapter. It's amazing if you want to hear what God says about finances. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And when we are content, we count our blessings. But we, like Paul, have to learn the secret of being content an interesting thing, and we're going to look at that Philippians chapter 4. Uh, Philippians really is a letter written from jail. He's in jail, and he's thanking, sending them this letter as a thank you for a financial gift that was given them, um, uh, that was sent to him while he was in jail to pay for his needs. And he writes this at the end, in that context, as he finishes this Amazing letter to this church he loved. He said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you also had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. Amazing if you read the prison epistles, Ephesians, um, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and uh, Philippians. Those three letters to churches, and then he wrote a letter to Philemon. While he's in jail, he never, ever complains once about being in jail. He just sees it as an opportunity. He had learned the secret even in jail to be content. He says, I know what it is to be in need. In fact, I'm actually in jail right now. And I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He had to learn this. But what didn't come naturally to him, he learned the secret. And the secret was keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus, keeping his eyes focused on the prize, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. We can live in plenty and be discontent as much as we can live in want and be discontent. And he had learned the secret that contentment is a key to live in a life of freedom. And he says this, I can do all things through whom he gives me strength. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah's been speaking of the coming Messiah, amazing couple of chapters. And here, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he offers a prophetic invitation that Jesus Christ... Would have for us. In 55 verse 1 and 2. Come all you are thirsty. Come to the waters. You have no money. Come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk. Without money or cost. He's talking about spiritual things here. And then. He asks a question. Why do you. Verse 2, spend your money on that which is not bread. Remember, Jesus is the bread of life. And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Go and read the rest. Because Jesus says this, and asks the question himself in Matthew 8, 6, 36. He says, what good is it if someone, for someone to gain the whole world, It forfeit his soul. And the answer to this rhetorical question, this question, is aptly nothing. It's of no value. You see, Peter says in 1 Peter, and he's writing to a persecuted church, and he's trying to encourage them. And he says, you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. The goal of our faith is not more stuff. The goal of our faith is our salvation, that our lands are written in the land book of life. And the goal of our faith through the Abrahamic covenant that Ross spoke of so well last week is to be blessed to be a blessing. To be blessed to be a blessing. Because through us blessing others, we represent Christ as his ambassadors, and they get to know Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the heart of giving and the principle of sowing and reaping. And he writes this 2 Corinthians 9, verse to 11. Remember this, ever so sparingly will reap sparingly. Now, the Bible in Corinthians early on has said, first the natural. Then the supernatural. So the Bible always uses natural context to apply a biblical truth. Because we can understand those. So though he's talking about sowing seed, he's speaking about finances. Because the chapter before, this one, he's clearly asking this church in Philippi to raise an offering to help the church in Jerusalem. So the context is finances. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Remember I said it's about the heart? Not under, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. As salty, who, do you remember the salty songs? He used to sing, God loves a cheerful liver. God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't need our bucks, He wants our heart. And the battle is between stuff and our heart, the flesh and the spirit. And when we do that, then God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things you may have all that you need. There's a big difference between what I need and what I want. And you know that? I have grandchildren and they want everything. They want everything that's bad for them. They want sweets, cookies and all of that and thank the good Lord sometimes I give them and send them home and they run around like a top at home for sure. But what they need is different to what they want. And we are no different to those little toddlers in God's eyes. I want this. I want this. I want this. No, but you don't need it. And God wants to grant us the desires of our heart. So some of the things we desire, He wants us to have. But not at expense of the king and the kingdom. Amen? Amen. You, and you will abound in every good work. It is written, he scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply an increase in the store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. We're going to look at that a little bit later. And you will be made rich in every way. See, the enemy, one of the temptations of Jesus was bow down to me and I'll give you all the gold, all the world, all all of that stuff you can have, the kingdoms of this world. If you bow down to me, you can have them. You can have anything you want. But not many people are rich in every way, maybe in finances. And God says we can be rich in relationships, rich in, in health, rich in all of those things that He wants to give us that are way much more important than money. Interesting, when you get older, um, health becomes more important than money. And that comes from God. And through us, your generous, generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So a few things we learn from this passage. It's a very simple message, but I hope you get what God is saying. God loves generous people because generosity represents his heart. His heart. Generosity Represents him. He so loved that he gave not a few bucks, his only son, that whomsoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves us, he cares for us. That's the first thing. God loves generous people. And the second thing under generosity, generosity is not dependent on the size of the gift, but proportion to what we have. We sometimes feel if we add another zero to something that that's been generous. Well, I tell you how Jesus sees it. Because some people say, I can only give this or I can't give that. And others say, well, I gave so much. So much in proportion to what is the question. And so Jesus in Luke 21, verse 1 to 4, addresses this to the Pharisees. He's in the temple and he says this. As Jesus looked up, he saw rich, the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. So seeing all these guys come in with their big bucks. But he also saw... A poor widow. You put in two small copper coins, two cents. And this is what Jesus said Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all the others. These people gave the gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. So in all she had, uh, in all, so she sold all she had to live on. God is not about money. If he was about money, he would have said, man, look at those guys with the big bucks. Isn't that awesome? He looks at the one. So don't underestimate the power of a penny if that's all you have. Don't underestimate the power of 10 bucks, or don't underestimate what God can do with that money, and not only that, that, what God can do in your heart. Because as I've seen this over and over, believe it or not, before my, my, um, God called me to ministry this might uh, shock you I was in corporate finance with an international bank. I wore a suit. And I vowed never to wear one again when I left, but I do for weddings for sure. But so many discontent people, so many, so many, so many discontent people. And those, some of those people could write a check if they, for, for a place like Oceanside if they wanted to, and they wouldn't even notice it, that kind of money. And Jesus says, that's cool, but this is what I want. So don't let the enemy rob you of the privilege of sowing because you've just got one penny. Don't let him do that. That is important to God because he looks at your heart. And it means a lot to him. God loves, also loves. We see this. A joyful and willing heart. That we're not to give reluctantly or under compulsion. And one of my pet peeves is watching some prosperity gospel people on the TV. You almost feel that like they're going to suck you through that tube by the time they finish the offering, which is... Half an hour longer than the preach. That is not God's way, and I don't want to judge anybody, but it misrepresents the heart of God. You need to know that, but you also need to go because there's sometimes a counterfeit, it does not mean there's not a real. And we look at the Word of God, and this is what He says. Jesus spoke more about finance than anything else, and if you just read those scriptures, they're pretty hard-hitting in a way, but they're also tremendously freeing when you understand what he's talking about. He spoke about needs and wants, that he meets our needs, not necessarily our wants. God promises to bless us so that we can be a blessing. Luke 6, 38, Jesus again Speaking of finances, but it applies to anything. All these principles, sowing and reaping. If you're lonely, find a lonely person to sow into. If you, are, um, if you need a, a friend, make a friend. You know what I mean? Start working out. You, uh, working into those areas where you need help. And God will supply them as you step out in faith. And this is what he says here in Luke 6:38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be measured to you. And firstly, God knows when the harvest is needed. Galatians 6, 9 to 10. This. Paul writes, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Let us not become weary in doing good, for in the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to to the family of believers. And here a good friend of mine, Roy e. Dyer, pastor of the church in South Africa, came up with these 10 principles. And I'm just going to read these to you, make one or two more comments. And I just felt in God to leave that with you. We may pray um, afterwards and worship a little bit more. But I just felt just to deposit and not to add what I felt God asking me to do, which as a preacher is sometimes harder than you think. So Rory came up with this according to 2 Corinthians 9. The first principle, God always gives you seed, and we must not eat the seed. Seed is for sowing, and bread is for food. Sometimes we think we're blessed, and all we are is living off seed the seed the harvest is established at sowing time and not reaping time sow into good ground starting with your 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 local church wherever that is your church family who will look after you who will love you for care for you don't only necessarily sow into there but sow into your local church What you sow, you reap. Like begets like. Financial sowing, financial blessings will flow as a harvest. Sowing love, forgiveness, acceptance, all of those things, you'll reap those in your life too. Expenses are highest at sowing and reaping time. You can ask any farmer that. My grandfather was a farmer uh, on the north coast of South Africa at a sugar farm. And that was a big expense time for sure. Uh, carry on, thanks. There's always a period between sowing and reaping. Be patient, be faithful. God knows when you need the breakthrough. And Deborah and I have, um, have experienced that over and over and over again. The just-in-time God. They're hanging on the side of the cliff when he comes through. And I can't tell you even in, in planting this church again and again when we thought we would not um, be able to continue. God would lay it on somebody's heart and without us even, we never speak about finances and supply our needs. He knows when we need them. Like my grandchildren, they want it now. Now, now. Right now. we can be like that. There's never a convenient time to sow. You eat yourself into famine, and you sell yourself out of it. And God doesn't promise to increase the bread, but to increase the seed. Because he knows the more seed sown, the greater the harvest. And we are to suppose, um, sow in proportion to what we have. Amazing principles in the Word of God. Very simple. And there's a theologian, R.T. Kendall, that I follow. Uh, he pastored the church um, uh, in, in London for a num- number of years. And um, he wrote this. He had this quote which I had in my I had in my one of my journal books. And he says this, R.T. Kendall. If every Christian would tithe, give 10% of their income, no matter how big or small, to their local church, as God requires, every congregation would be free of financial pressure and truly could begin to be the salt of the earth. If every Christian would tithe, the church would begin to make an impact on the world that would change it. And in Deuteronomy, finishing with this, Well, uh, Deuteronomy 8. Amazing passage here. God is preparing the children of Israel to enter into the promised land. And in this chapter, he says, now when you get there, there's going to be incredible blessing. You're going to have big houses, you're going to have land, you're going to have cattle, you're going to have, so he speaks all about that. He speaks about all of the blessing that they're going to have here. And they've been waiting for, well, a generation has had to die for this new generation to walk into the promise. So he's setting them up and saying, this is what you can expect, all the good stuff. But in verse 17 to 18, he says something that is extremely important for us. And he says this, you may say to yourself, my power and strength of my hands have have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God. It is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms His covenant, which you swore to your ancestors as it is today. God is the God of everything. God wants to bless. Genesis 26, we see Isaac was told to sow in a land of famine. Sow in a land of famine. And while everybody was eating their seed because there was famine, he sowed, and in that famine, he reaped a hundredfold. You see, we are not subject to the economies of this world in the kingdom. We live in this. But you see, over and over again, God providing in the midst of droughts, in the midst of famines, in the midst of all of that, where where people were faithful. And we need to get back, if we've lost our way a little bit, and I'm reading this, I can see how easily I can get discontent. In preparing this, for this thing, I was thinking of the things that sometimes grip my heart. And I must admit, sometimes can overwhelm me or, or change my dispossession. And that's why we need to come daily to the throne. That's why we come and we fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why we come and we lay down all our crowns at his feet and say, you alone are worthy. You're the one that created all things. You're the one who provides in the good times and the bad. And your provision for us is way much more than the wealth you give. Let us not forget that. Dealing with multimillionaires that are so bored because they cannot even know what to buy that they don't have. They forget what they have. So bored. <laughs> it was an opening for me that. I think helped me change my life, and through God, let that all go, and plant a church. One of the things. And so, if we could bow our heads, and the worship team could come here, please. I want to finish this. The Bible says there's no condemnation. There is conviction. The difference between condemnation and conviction is simply this. Condemnation is the enemy wanting to trash you about your past. Your past is gone. Conviction is about the Holy Spirit wanting you to make adjustments for your future. God never looks back. He wants us to make adjustments for our future, that's all. He wants us to trust Him so that when things if and do get worse and bad, that we are a people that have a harvest from heaven. And so we cannot do anything about our past. Would have could have should have so many areas of our lives. And that's enemy talk. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, okay, we start again. I forgive you your sin. Where's this clipboard? Please don't forget to fill them. Bit of an advert. This is all my stuff for the week, except those are all filled up. I come to the, my Father, I come daily. It looks like that. It looks like that overnight. God says He separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, and He chooses to remember it no more. He does not. Jesus' blood has paid the price for it. But the enemy wants to keep bringing this before us. And this list gets longer as the days go on. And that's why we come to the throne of grace. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us, He never pushes us and He never makes us do anything. And God's love is constant. Do you know that God loves you as much as when you sin as when you don't? Do you know that? His love is constant. It's not he loves me, he loves me not. God hates sin for this one reason. Because it separates us from relationship with him. Because when we have sin and and guilt, God says, come into my presence and we draw back. And he wants relationship. And that's why he sent his son. Listen, he said, I know you can't do this on your own but my son did it for you. And if you think that your sin is bigger than my son's sacrifice, then, Mike, you're a little deluded. God has forgiven us, and he will again, and he will every day. We are being transformed every day And one step closer. Sometimes we take two steps back, comes back and fetches us. Okay, come on, my boy. Stay the course. Run this race. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Paid for. Paid for, paid for. And I think this applies to all areas of our life. If you are dealing with things that are bigger than you, if we can just close our eyes. I think of the Holy Spirit and just open your hands where you are. And just give those things to God. You see, it's not about money. It's about heart. And I feel some here have broken hearts and hardened hearts through life and through the church. Leaders have let you down. And God wants you to open your hands. Romans 5 tells us the love of God is poured into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that your unconditional, undeserved, agape love of God will fill us. That everyone here will know that they're loved. In Isaiah 43, fear not, for I am with you. I've summoned you by name, Joe, Jack, Joel, Dave, whatever your name is. I have summoned you by name. And you are mine, says the Lord. And when you walk through the fires, they may not be put out, but I am with you. I walk you through them. And when the floods of life come and the it seems like you're going to be washed away. It seems like this wall of rivers is just out of control. He says, you too, with me, will pass through the waters. For I have redeemed you, and I've summoned you by name. God never intended us to carry our sin and burdens. He intended for us to give them to Jesus Christ who paid for them. The enemy intends us to carry them so they can squash us. But give them to Jesus. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy my burden is light. Lord, we open our hands today for whatever has captivated our heart more than you. If our first love has, like the church in Ephesus, is waning, all you asked that church to do, you didn't even condemn them. You just said repent. And repent simply means turn around and come back to me. I believe God is wanting to heal. God is wanting to restore. Physical, emotional, maybe financial. He's in the restoration business. He takes a beat up old car. Named Mike. And he makes it better than you. Paul said this of himself, forgetting that which is behind. Lord, I pray that those chains will be broken. Chains of fear of of lack. Chains of fear of of being hurt again. Chains of fear of of letting go and fully trusting you. I pray that those chains will be broken. Break those shackles off our feet, Lord. You never put them there. You died to take them off. We are no longer slaves. We are no longer slaves. We are no longer slaves. we am going to ask Camilla if she can sing that over us. And just Holy Spirit, begin to rain down. Come, Holy Spirit.